0: Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Of course, we are, uh, well, just a few days away from the municipal election. October 22nd is voting day, although the advance polls, of course, opened up yesterday. Uh, and uh, as we predicted some time ago, uh, light rail transit, the LRT issue, is obviously a driving factor in this election, uh, especially between the two major candidates for the mayor's position, that being the incumbent Fred Eisenberger and uh, the challenger Vito Scro. Uh, and, uh, well, LRT was front and center once again. And uh, it's getting a little messy right now when you look at some of the back and forth that's going on. Uh, Fred Eisenberger, the incumbent mayor, of course, and LRT supporters says Vito Scro is willfully misinforming people about how the city can spend the billion dollars the province has earmarked for the project. Uh, Scro, to his part, has issued a release uh, yesterday suggesting that uh, Premier Doug Ford's office backs up his position and that Eisenberger has a campaign based on fiction and misrepresentation. It's getting ugly. Sounds like the gloves are coming off. Uh, we're going to get your thoughts on this. I'm going to open the lines up in just a couple of minutes here for uh, for your take on what's going on and who you believe in this debate that seems to be going back and forth. And we'll do that in just a few seconds. want to bring Henry Jason into the conversation first of all, though. Uh, professor of political science, of course, at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Henry, great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for the time today. Oh, no problem, Bill. Listen, th- 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 these things get a little testy, but I, th- I can't recall a municipal election that seems to have that amount of vitriol like this one does.
1: Well, yeah, it, it is pretty intense, uh, and I think that's you know we have an incumbent mayor who thinks he's done a good job, and he's you know making his arguments, and then we have uh, somebody who has uh, been active in the back rooms of politics. We haven't heard very much about him. I mean, the general public hasn't. Who's used to you know you know the the tough side inside po- part of politics, and he wants to be mayor, and uh, he's a very communicates well and prepares a simple message and and essentially wants the job, so boom, we got two people who are out there in the middle of the street having a little brawl.
0: It seems that way, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, not the first time we've had a controversial issue, though. And I mentioned on the show before, this seems to bring back memories of, uh, I guess it was the 2003 election, which was basically about the expressway at that time, mm-hmm. and two major contenders. As a matter of fact, they were both contenders at that time because Bob Wade did not uh, run again, uh, but it was Larry Diani and David Christopherson, both on very different sides of that issue. hmm
1: yeah, that was. And, of course, David Kristofferson was a de- very different person than the challenger we have today. <laughs> very different personality.
0: Well, yeah, and, and again, he had that profile, that high profile anyway, because of his time. Well, first yeah, of all, as a counselor and as an counsel. MPP, yeah. Yeah,
1: and, and as we saw later on, and uh, I had talked to him be, during the campaign, I, I always knew he had plan B, which was to run as an MP. Which uh, yeah, I did. which he didn't. He's had a successful career in Ottawa.
0: Exactly. Uh, what about that that idea about profile, though, Henry? I mean, how important is that as as people decide who they're going to select uh, to be the mayor in this city?
1: Well, I mean, the incumbent always has a, a big advantage unless the incumbent has done something that really riles up people It uh, usually have a personal nature now I mean the there's nothing personal that you can say about our current mayor %uh that he's done something wrong at, on a personal level whether financial sexual or anything else it's really a policy disagreement what's the best thing for Hamilton to go ahead with you know, the LRT project and the associated infrastructure, or to basically come up with a new plan and go to the province, and say we want to spend this money on this new plan. So that it's really, so really, it's a policy discussion, not some much a, a personality. You know, any personality defect of the of the mayor.
0: But we're going into a, a, a kind of a dark area here, where we're actually pulling the province into this debate. When, and I'm not so sure that any government at the Queens Park uh, wants to get involved in the nitty gritty of a municipal election. But that billion dollars really seems to be the the contentious issue.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the, what, what people aren't uh, need to focus on is what's happening at the provincial level. We have a brand-new government. By its own admission, it has a real big problem. It has a $16 billion deficit. They're going to be looking to cut all sorts of things. <laughs> so, I mean, I think... That, you know, if, 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 if we get a council, a new council, and says, well, we're not so sure we want to go to the LRT. Let's talk to the province about something else. That money, I'm sure, will, for the time being, will disappear into that $16 billion deficit. We might get a promise that, well, when you get your act together three years down the road, well, we'll, we'll start funding something new, perhaps. But, you know, it's going to be up in the sky, and uh, the money's going to, you know, whether we'd ever see that kind of money again uh, in the next four years, I, I doubt it. It's just basically the reality of the financial situation the province finds itself in.
0: The uh, release that uh, Vito Scrooge issued yesterday, at least his office did anyway, uh, the, here's a quote, uh, this is what he's using as justification to say the government is still committed to this and, and is is backing up his position. It's just a very brief comment here. It says, Our government, for the people, will ensure Hamilton gets the money it needs for transit or infrastructure. Our government will wait and see what the city's transit priorities are after the municipal election, and whether it is for the billion-dollar LRT project or other projects that council wants, the Ontario government will be there with funding. And that's a sign from John Jakubowski, who's the Minister of Transportation, of course, for the Ford government. Does that sound like a commitment to you?
1: Well, it's a commitment to do, as I mentioned earlier, it's going to be something, it, there'll be a commitment there. They're not going to say, we'll never do this, or it's not going to happen. But the question is when. See, there's no time commitment in there. And if you've got a big deficit right now, uh, why not wait, uh, You know, deal with your deficit now, if you're the finance minister or the cabinet there, and then uh, three, uh, you know, nine uh, a year before the election, nine months before the election, say, oh, by the way, we will fund a new project in Hamilton. And uh, let's start planning for it, and uh, it, it'll come to a fruition uh, in the not too distant future. Meanwhile, three years have gone by, and I bet you, by the time if we went that route, by the time of the next election, I'm sure nothing would have happened because by the time you plan a whole new way of spending the money, it's going to blow past the next uh, election date. So, yeah, it's it's the timing because there's no timing put in there. That, that allows the government to just put it off. And we know oftentimes, if you listen to government announcements, they're const- you have to always listen for the timing. And even when they put in timing, they'll say, over the next 10 years, we're going to spend X on mental health. Yeah. Well, wh- wh- is the government going to be in power 10 years from now? And and oftentimes, that money spent is back-end loaded. That is, it's the back-end of the 10 years, and the money <laughs> doesn't come along. Uh, timing is very important get you need to get the government to give a a pro- promise on a timing and and i didn't hear it in there and i think most governments are not going to do it And this government with sixteen billion dollar deficit does not want to commit to any new spending
0: which is I, I, one of the things that just seems to get <clears throat> excuse me thrown out to the side here, uh, and we're forgetting about this. And you and I've talked about this many times. Of course, there's a process in in right. situations like this. Uh, and, and you know, it was I think mischaracterized right from the get go that there is not a billion dollar check sitting there with you know with the city of Hamilton's name on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, there's there's a process. You have to apply for these things. You have to uh, you know if you're going to do this project, uh, show me the basically show me your homework on this. Right. And, and that takes a lot of time, doesn't it? And a lot of uh, uh, you know, there's this committee to go to, et cetera, et cetera. This, this could drag out for years yet.
1: I mean, this is what most people don't think. I mean, we uh, a parliamentary form of government like we have is very strong, but all the I's you got to dot and the T's you got to cross and all the processes you have to do, and especially when you involve the private sector that's going to be involved with building a lot of this stuff, just you, contracts, you, you know, they take a long time to negotiate, uh, you know, to get up and running, you know, it is these things take a long period of time and the government really has to be focused on projects to really push them forward and uh, yeah people don't i think generally don't realize how slow things go because of all the various you know players that are involved in making something happen and all the processes you'll have to go through and of course no government wants to you know go quickly through some process that may turn out to uh, you know, look bad in hindsight, and then they get blamed for it. So they're very careful, and we don't want to do anything that's wrong when we're spending a billion dollars, because it's going to come back and bite us.
0: Yeah, there's another element to this, too, that doesn't seem to be part of the conversation. Um, it's a kind of a head-scratcher for me, is the, the, the basically the form of government and, that we have here at the municipality, Henry. Mm-hmm. Uh, whoever the, is going to win this election, whoever the next mayor is going to be, whether it's the incumbent or, or one of these challengers, might be Mr. Scrooge, could be... Uh, they only get one vote on council.
1: That's right, but they have a more. I mean, well, one thing they do have. I mean, you know this better than I do, of course. But but I think uh, you know the mayor is the spokesperson for the for the city council, and uh, you know a lot of you know when they go when when the city, when people up at Queens Park are uh, you know basically negotiating with the city, they normally assume they're you know they're gonna be sitting across from the mayor, maybe with some counselors and some staff people, but uh the basically that the point person, you know, is the mayor. And so you're right, he only has one vote, but in, in, in terms of, you know, negotiating with upper level governments, both provincial and federal and the press, I mean, I think the mayor is very important. Uh, you know the I uh, think was U.S. President uh, Theodore Roosevelt many many years ago in the states says the thing great thing about being president was and he had no vote in Congress but the great thing is he said it was, the presidency was a bully pulpit that is what he meant by that is he had when he t- spoke people paid
0: attention. You still have to tread lightly though as I, yeah. uh, as a matter of fact very relevant to this discussion about LRT. Right. Uh, former Mayor Bob Bertina got in hot water with his council colleagues because they. Basically said, look at you're going to Queens Park, and you're not articulating the message we want you to. And I think he got censured actually by council at that point. And so you you do have that bully pulpit, but at the same time, the other people around that council table simply say, look at you have to do what we want you to do, what the majority want us to do. So it's 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 a balancing act, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is, and certainly again, you know better than I. But you yeah, you have to negotiate with the councilors. You have to have a good sense of. You know, what can I build sort of a consensus today around the people on the council? If I go out and do, say a certain thing, will I have most of the council saying it's okay? Or will they come out and say, no, 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 you can't say that. We didn't agree to it. So the, the, there has to be a social intelligence that I think our mayor has. He, you know, he, can, he can't be a bull in the china shop. You have to essentially, you know, basically try to keep, uh, you know, a, a main group of people in the council uh, on your side. And, and it may not only be you know the uh, the numbers, but it may be there's you, see, you probably and again you probably know better than I. It's certain people on the council who have a lot of respect. So if you have some of the important people, uh, you know that are that 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 you know are respected and not only in their area and they re- represent diverse areas of the city and they're, they're you know well known and if they're more or less together with the mayor, then I think the mayor can. Get things done, but it's still a struggle. It's still a struggle to get things done, and uh, it takes a lot of time. And yeah, I mean, being the mayor, I think is a very difficult job.
0: Yeah, uh, <laughs> not for the, the the faint of heart. But any stretching no. the imagination, Henry? Do you get the sense that, that there's a, a, a mood change in the city about this project? Uh, that that people are starting to give second thoughts to it, or do you think that the, the so the resolve to get this thing done is is actually becoming more solid?
1: Well, I think there really is a split, but I think it's a split between... You know, essentially, it's a split. I think basically between people who are future oriented, who are looking, saying, "What, what does the city need ten, twenty years down the road?" And they're estimating what they need, and they think they think they need not you know the LRT, but also the rebuild of the infrastructure, including the telecommunications infrastructure, which I think nobody talks about, but it strikes me as very important if you mm-hmm. want to attract business uh, between uh, you know Mac and Eastgate. And uh, so those people looking there and saying, okay, we are going to have to do some sacrifices. Of course, construction is going to be a mess when you do something like this. But this is something like you have to go through. And then you have other people who say, I just don't want to be bothered with, uh, with this mess right now. And uh, I don't want to be, you know, I'm, I'm tired of all this controversy. I'm worried about, you know spend we have to may have to spend money in the meantime or something like that and they say i just want the problem to go away and i think you have those two people with those two type of perspectives and i think that there's a big split there but i think you know when you look at the people who are you know forward-looking uh... and essentially want to make the sacrifices and then seeing about where the city's going to go and i think that's you know, that's the business, a lot of it's the business community, the community with the big institutions, including my own McMaster University, basically saying this is good for the city, and sort of reminds me, looking back, I'd love to go back and t- check this out, but I mean, it was a big sacrifice for the city to bring McMaster University in the 1930s from Toronto, but I think it was good for the city, and I think these things are, are uh, you know, they do take sacrifice over the short term, and uh, some people are willing to do that sacrifice over the short term, and some people don't want to do that sacrifice over the short term. I've heard from both sides, and I think
0: that's, that's the divide. But is this back and forth, especially between Eisenberger and Scrooge, continues and seemingly is heating up again? Right. What does that do to, to the electorate? Does, does that embolden them? Does that fire them up to, to do something about this? Does it, does it change minds?
1: Well, first of all, I think it should increase turnout. I think we should have a good turnout uh, because we've got a, a very live issue here. And, uh, you know, I think turnout, is, a raising turnout is good, <laughs> uh, and and that I'm happy about that. And, you know, I hope people are paying attention, to. We had, the, you know, the big article in the Hamlin Spectator today, and anybody listening in who wants to sort sure of try to understand both sides, I thought it'll, the the article was pretty good. It was a long, lengthy article, but people should, you know, take the time out to read that. And uh, get themselves informed about this issue, and 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 really ask themselves, you know, what what do they want the future to look like, uh, and do they think we can reach the future we want by not having the LRT, or do we need the LRT? And also look at the infrastructure we're going to, you know, g- get for that, and particularly what uh, I'm quite surprised very, virtually no talk about the telecommunications infrastructure that's going to go down uh, when we're when you're when you're building that, and uh, I, I just think if you want to, if you want to take you know hold down the rate of increase on home taxes we've got to get more businesses in the city and I think for a modern business who's looking around for a location, telecommunications connectivity is is really critical, and I think you know, I've heard from people economically who have an economic interest in the city saying, you yeah, know, we're not good enough there. We're losing out to places like Kitchener, Waterloo, because we don't have that backbone of telecommunications going down our main street. So that's, that's what they tell me, and I think uh, I'd like to hear some people talk about that.
0: Well, so would I, and we're going to do that in just a couple of minutes. Uh, Henry, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Okay, I love talking to you, Bill. You bye, bet bye. You. Henry Jasek, of course, from McMaster University. <laughs>
2: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Well, tariffs, trades, uh, these are all things that we're hearing almost on a daily basis right now. Yesterday, the Canadian government announced that uh, they are imposing new surtaxes on some foreign steel to head off the threat of dumping beginning uh, later on this month. uh, Imports of seven steel products are going to be subjected to a 25% surtax. Uh, when those levels uh, exceed historic norms. That's according from uh, the Department of Finance, a release they put out yesterday. So where is this all going, and, and, and how is this going to have an impact on us? Let's ask Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at uh, Carleton University. Ian, thanks so much for the time.
2: Appreciate it. Uh, good morning, Bill. My pleasure.
0: It's interesting when I saw this story yesterday. I, I think initially people may think, well, this is all because of these steel aluminum tariffs. This has as so much to do with what the U.S. is doing with China now, That's, as, as it that, does with us, doesn't it?
2: That, that is absolutely right. The uh, the even larger problem I have is that they introduced something I thought it was a very subtle um, uh, change. Historically, um, uh, tariffs were imposed by a country on another country when there's evidence of that country cheating. And the def the classic definition of cheating is that they're selling below market in the foreign country, below what they sell it for in their own country. So if you sell your widget for a dollar a unit in your own country and then you export it to Canada and are selling the same widget for 50 cents a unit, well that's dumping. The press release from the finance ministry did not say that. What it said was, where there's an unusual increase, or didn't even say unusual, where there's an increase over historical exports to Canada, that will warrant a tariff. Well. I mean, if you use that test, then Apple should be hit with big tariffs because Apple imports of the Apple iPhone have gone up every year, every year, every year because their market share has gone up, up, up because it's become the most popular phone in the world. In other words, that's what companies try to do all the time. I've been teaching this for 30 years. Companies try to develop a product or a service that is unique, uh, that gives them a competitive advantage, that wants, uh, that motivates people to want to go and buy that product, whether it's a car or a cell phone, or whatever. That's what competition's all about. You innovate to try to build a better mousetrap than your competitors, and then you will sell more sales. That's not dumping. That is not cheating. That is called competition. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Where am I going with this? Well, we are in the absurd, absurd situation now where we're imposing tariffs on imports coming in of certain types of steel of which there are shortages in Canada because we don't make enough. So we're going to penalize Canadian users of specialty steel for doing what? For buying foreign steel that is not made in Canada. Now, why is that their fault? They can't buy it. It's not available. So then finance said, well, okay, then we'll allow them to apply for an exemption. Well, if that's the case, why impose it in the first place? Why this elaborate Rube Goldberg uh, bureaucracy to prevent something that isn't happening? I mean, the whole idea is, are they dumping? And if there is dumping, there's an uh, anti-dumping tribunal that, that actually studies this, and they can come to very quick rulings, by the way. And that's what we've done for years upon years upon end. Now we've gone to a completely different criterion or standard, which is, are the exports into Canada going up over past years? and that's not the definition of dumping so we're just going crazy I mean it's not just Canada by the way I mean so is Trump and he's he's normalizing tariffs and we're starting to treat it uh, almost as a as a, um, a money raiser for government uh, not because it's trying to solve a policy problem of dumping and unfair competition
0: was this done for optics though Ian uh, to, to show the Americans that we're, we're serious about trying to stop China from dumping stuff into North America
2: uh, probably, I
0: we're, we're trying to be friends with these guys again, and yeah. you know, and, and they're very concerned about that, and legitimately so. I understand that, but, uh, but does this really just to show them? Look at it, if you let, dump our tariffs, so you get rid of that steel and aluminum stuff, and, and we'll do this.
2: Yeah, I, I do believe that uh, that was part the, a good part of the motivation. Um, I mean the money let 's be very clear, the money flowing into the government of canada is just it 's just gushing yeah. it 's it's just gushing so any i mean i 've never heard of a politician or no one a read of a politician that says we don 't want more money to spend so we can go out and do photo ops to get reelected on the basis of all that money we 're spending i mean politicians don 't get unhappy when they have more money to spend i 'm um, not saying that 's their sole motivation uh, in this instance, I fully acknowledge that they 're partly doing this to Uh, to send the message to the Americans, don't worry, we're on the same page as you about China. Uh, I just think that we're going down, uh, not just us, all of us (laughs) uh, are going down the wrong road. We spent 70 years from 1945 until the last 12 months trying in successive rounds of the WTO, the World Trade Organization, used to be called uh, the General Agreement on Trades and Tariffs. We've spent 70-odd years trying to get rid of tariffs or trying to reduce them as much as possible. And now we're going in the exact opposite direction, notwithstanding that we've known for a very, very long time that tariffs are a very poor policy instrument. They introduce all kinds of inefficiencies in a country. They, produce, they pass on costs that are unnecessary to consumers, and, and, and they slow down the economy. So here we are, instead of, instead of saying, let's have a huge a uh, meeting of the WTO um, to say, let's get down a brass tax and start talking about this. What can we do to stop these tariff, counter-tariff, counter-tariff measures? And so we don't go down the road that we did, as, as we know we did in the 1930s, granted a different period of time, but when they got into the, these tariff wars, which were very, very destructive.
0: Well, it's just, it's death by a thousand cuts. I mean, you yep. know, there's the announcement, and it, was, it wasn't was even a front-page story the other day when, when the U.S. announced further sanctions against China. And, of course, they're retaliating back and now, and now, and now we're doing this. And exactly. we, we're all getting sucked into this trade war vortex right now. Yep. How do you stop this?
2: Um, someone's going to have to show leadership. It's got to come from the top. I don't mean an academic, for sure. <laughs> I mean, it's got to come from a, uh, a leader, a Western leader who has stature. Um, you know, if it came from both Trump and Z from, uh, China, would well, that be fantastic? Uh, I think that the United States has to be on board because if they're not on board, they are the largest economy in the world. If they're not on board, it's not going to happen. <clears throat> I'd be much happier if Mr. Trudeau was trying to, uh, Use his uh, good office uh, to uh, work behind the scenes with Trump to try to get him to start talking about going down that road. He keeps saying, "I'm ready to talk anytime." Well, let's put him to the test. Let's, let's call a meeting of at least the, the, the largest trading countries in the world. There's 200 countries at the U.N, but that's way too cumbersome to negotiate. How about just getting the G20? or even a smaller subset of the G20 to sit down and say, look, we've got to deal with some very big picture ideas here, concepts. Are we going to tolerate this, uh, this tariff war, set of wars that are going on, or can we stop it in its tracks? But they're not even talking about doing that right now.
0: Well, maybe the reason they're not talking about it is because Trump likes this stuff. I mean, he, he yeah. seems to revel in the, in, in the disruption that he's causing. And, well, you remember that famous quote yeah. now, I, I love tariff wars, we can win these.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And uh, he's got to, I, I quite agree. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not trying to duck it off in this. I mean, terror, uh, Trump is at the, at the core of this issue. He's the guy that really started it all. And and then secondly, because they are the largest economy in the world, it's going to have to, a solution has to come from, that includes the United States. And then the question is, well, what can we do in Canada or UK or one of the other countries, Germany, to try to push or lobby or persuade Trump to go in that direction, uh, whether it's giving speeches at the United Nations, whatever. It's just that the, the what we're doing now, I just think, is not going to end up. Uh, it's not going to help us. It's only going to hurt our economies. And down the road, we're going to look back and say, "Gee whiz, this is where we crossed the tipping point." And it just seems awfully foolish to be going down such a road that everybody knows is going to lead to bad outcomes
0: does everybody know? I mean because Trump has well, surrounded <laughs> himself with probably only a handful of people in the United States that actually do like terrorists Peter Navarro and 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 Wilbur Ross and folks like that and and obviously they they're pumping the wind beneath his wings right now. They're saying, "Yeah, go ahead, Mr. President, keep doing
2: this." Yeah. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. You are. And uh, they are Popular, I think, so far. Although, you know, when you look at his overall, uh, uh, um, you know, polling numbers, they're trending down, down, down. They're saying that he's going to lose the the House of Representatives to the Democrats. So I'm not so sure that his ideas are that popular. That's the uh, first point. The second point is, is they haven't really hit yet. It takes a while for these price increases to feed their way through the supply chains. And because a lot of this is like steel, it's an indirect product. You and I as consumers don't go out and buy tons of steel. We go and buy cars that have a lot of steel in them. And uh, so that's how we express our demand. But it takes a while for the time that you impose the tariff on the steel to the time it works its way through to the mills from the mills to the shipping to the car companies that are buying the the raw steel to put into the car etc so you know we may not see it hitting and biting for another six or nine months and uh in other words after the midterm election so you know we may not feel the pain yet but at some point we're going to feel the pain and whether it triggers a recession or just triggers a significant increase in prices, yet to be determined.
0: But and it's not just steel, obviously, that's going to be impacted no. by this. I mean, this exactly. is going to be the cost of the, your blue jeans at Walmart too. I mean, everything is going to start exactly. increasing like this.
2: Exactly, and it, it you know there's already some signals or d- data that is suggesting that inflation prices are creeping up. And I can remember, I'm old enough to remember in the uh, '70s. I was a mortgage manager at the uh, at the Bank of Montreal, and uh, in the early '70s, inflation was at you know like at four, then it crept up to five, and then six, and then eight, and then ten. Eventually, it was over fourteen percent inflation, and that's when the Federal Reserve in the states decided to declare war on it, and they said uh, it was Paul Volcker, and he said, "I will drive up interest rates to whatever it takes to squeeze inflation out of the system." Interest rates peaked, if my memory serves me well, and I was the mortgage manager, they peaked at 20.5%. You know, people today talk about interest rates. I mean, it's just a joke. They're nothing compared to what we went through. We went through living hell in the early 80s with an induced recession, induced by the central bank to kill uh, inflation. But we don't want to go down that road again. It's very painful. It's very, very painful.
0: Can we do this without the United States? Is there a way to end this? Uh, as you mentioned, whether it's going to be the G8 or the G20 or whatever it's going to be. Because uh, obviously Trump doesn't seem to want to play in the sandbox with anybody at this stage.
2: Right. I mean, there, even though you're right, he does doesn't seem to... Um, have any observable set of allies, I mean, there's an implicit set of allies in the sense that, you know, no matter what he says or doesn't say, I mean, the Western allies, and I'm talking the, the NATO countries or the OECD countries, if you will, uh, they're not exactly the same, but close enough, meaning they're liberal, democratic, rule of law, uh, market economies. And, you know, the Germans and the Italys and the UKs and the Canadas and France's and so forth. We're not talking the authoritarian countries like China or Russia or Iran or Saudi Arabia. Those are, uh, you know, authoritarian countries, and, we don't, and they don't trade anywhere near as much as we do. Um, so I think it's got to come from within that core group of heavy trading companies, countries. Excuse me, Germany being an obvious one. Germany has got to be brought on board. Uh, Italy is a big exporting country. Uh, so is UK, of course. So is Canada. I mean, you know, you don't even need a G20. You need probably just the G7 minus the United States to start talking with one another because they're all on a first name basis and and then saying, look, why don't we propose a summit with Mr. Trump, just seven of us, very intimate, off, you know, no cameras present. They've got, I mean, he's that kind of a guy. He's not the kind of guy who's going to sit down and read academic policy briefing notes. He's the kind of a guy who's very... Um, touchy-feely, like he likes to be briefed face-to-face with lots, you know, that kind of thing. And so it's going to need somebody to persuade him. uh, And I can't believe that he despises all of these G7 leaders. I'm sure there's some there that he respects and that he's going to listen to at least to some extent. And uh, if we don't, I mean, I don't see, (laughs) if we don't try to go down that road, I don't see any other solution. Because it's got to include the states, because they are 25% of world GDP. That's how huge the U.S. is still today. After the rise of China, China is now 15% of world GDP. So those two countries together, China and America, are almost half of the world's GDP. They're 45%, to be precise. Well, that's, There's 200 countries in the world. Two of them are about half. Of the world's GDP, and the other 198 share the leftovers. <laughs> to put it that way,
0: uh, boy, it's uh, it's problematic, obviously, and, and just yeah. uh, I, I'm. Just hoping that somebody in, in Washington can actually see what's happening here, too. Ian, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this. Have a great weekend.
2: Yeah, my pleasure. Same to you.
0: Take care. Ian Lee from yeah, the Sprott School of Business, of course, at Carleton University.
2: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The UN report
0: on climate change that was released last week uh, made headlines for a day or two, uh, and it's something we need to spend a lot more time talking about. Uh, that uh, It talks about reaching a tipping point very, very soon uh, the uh, report from the United Nations indicates that the planet is warming at a far greater rate than previously thought. At the trajectory that we're on, the globe will be 1.5 degrees warmer than pre-industrial levels by 2040. Now, 1.5 may not sound like a whole lot, but the, the, the changes that they describe are going to occur because of that. Uh, inundating coastlines with uh, high sea levels, uh, extreme heat waves, drought, famine. Hundreds of millions of people the report, says, as a matter of fact, they estimate the damage that could be caused at around $54 trillion. Why aren't we talking more about this? Why aren't we doing something about this? Well, they, they do say near the end of the report that there is time to do something about this, but it just seems as if many politicians these days are actually walking back on this whole idea. There's pushback about a number of environmental initiatives that some governments are trying to, to get going, and that's happening right here in Canada. Joining us to talk about this is Dale Marshall, National Climate Program Manager with uh, Environmental Defense. Uh, Dale, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today.
3: Uh, good to be here, Bill. What
0: is, what is happening here? I mean, as we talk about stories like this, and, and, and there are always going to be deniers, I understand that, but I think there's a, hopefully a consensus now that, look, at climate change is happening, and, and we're, we're going down the wrong road here, uh, and governments don't seem to be doing what they have to be doing to try to curtail this stuff.
3: Yeah, it's, I mean it's a real problem. Uh, I mean this isn't the first time the alarm has been sounded, uh, but this is probably the loudest we've ever seen coming from this this research, just showing both uh, just how impactful uh, climate change will become over you know a fairly short amount of time. Um, you talked about the warm the the globe warming to about one point five degrees above pre-industrial levels by twenty forty and. Um, what this report highlights is as it goes above that temperature, as it goes 1.5 is when the potentially irreversible impacts and the really devastating impacts be- like begin. And one thing I really appreciated from your intro, though, is that you said it's not too late to act. And some may have the instinct to put their head in the, their, their head in the sand and say, oh, there's nothing we can do. We're on an irreversible track. And that's not true. There are we have to take really drastic action. I mean, it's needed now. It's really urgent. Um, but it's, it's, it's not our fate that we will reach that world that is described in this research that is. Um, nothing we'd ever want to
0: see. But what's what's even more troubling, though, Dale, is when you look at, at some of the political moves that have been made. I mean, since Donald Trump has been in president of the White House, of course, over the last little while in the United States, he's he's dumped an awful lot of the environmental initiatives that have been put in place for for years before that. Uh, the same thing seems to be happening here at a provincial level. Uh, Alberta, obviously, and Ontario, we've got a new premier right now, and he's already killed the uh, a number of environmental initiatives. And you wonder, are we going the wrong way down the street here?
3: Well, I think what's happening in these places is that we're going more slowly in the same direction because quite frankly, I mean, the reports that came out, the greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. are still dropping. Coal production is still dropping. And that's because the economics are there um, for much more renewable energy, much more energy efficiency. I mean, the coal industry is dying because because of economics, not because of climate action. And no one, not even Donald Trump, can can reverse that. It's very disappointing, of course, that we have leaders like President Trump, uh, like Premier Ford, who want to who want to pull back on action. Um, but a lot of the, what's being what has been set in motion is still going. Now, we have to we have there's no doubt we have to go much further. And hopefully this is this research is so clear that um that that going above that 1.5 degree threshold is going to be devastating and we need to act now and so i I really do hope that um those politicians in particular who are saying you know either it's too late or there's nothing to see here um are called out for that and and that we have a public that is more and more supportive of governments and parties that care about climate change and want to do something
0: and, and I agree with you. I mean, I've seen those studies and those surveys that have been done that indicate that the, the majority of people in this country, for instance, are in favor of doing something. They get it. Uh, they're not quite sure what, what should happen, but I mean, you have to look to government to do that. But then, I, I, I juxtapose that with the, well, Stephen Harper wrote a new book, and now and I'm going to paraphrase, because I haven't seen the book. I've just read some excerpts from it. But essentially, he was insinuating that, look, at environmental policy is bad politics. Uh, that uh, it doesn't get you elected. People don't really like it. Now, I don't. I disagree with them, but it's a mindset that, that as a lot of people will agree with and, and simply say, look, at if I want to get elected, then I better be on the side of, of, of the deregulation, such as what Trump is doing or what Doug Ford is doing here in Ontario right now. Uh, and that that's worrisome.
3: Well, unfortunately, conservative parties in the English-speaking world have decided that that is what they're going to ride on, that they're going to ride on... Anti-carbon tax, anti-action on climate change, um, and it's only because it's only because we have a first-past-the-post system that it that it, uh, uh, such a radical position, right? That the short-term economics of acting are worse than saving the planet in the medium term. I mean, that's a, that's a very radical position, and yet it's one that's been taken by conservative governments in largely Canada, the U.S. Uh, and, to a lesser extent, um, Australia. Um, and, and it's only because the first-past-the-post system works. Those, those parties can win power with 37 to 40% of the vote. If they needed 50% plus one, if they needed some kind of coalition to govern, they would never take such a radical position because, as you said, the majority of Canadians are not in favour of just sitting on our hands while the planet burns.
0: But in, you're right. That's the political reality that we need to deal with. And, uh, and, of course, it's the characterization. I mean, obviously, these guys know how to spin these things as well, because you look at, for instance, the cap-and-trade program or carbon taxing, as, as the federal government is trying to initiate in, the, in this country right now, and it's simply categorized by the, the, the opponents of it as it's just a tax. It's a, it's a money grab. And they, they don't talk about the environmental aspect of this at all. They just say they, they've, that's government with their hands in your pocket again. And there's a lot of people in this country that say, yeah, that's right. We don't need that thing. Uh, I mean, Jason Kenney saying the same thing in Alberta right now. If he wins the next provincial election, says he's going to kill the tax. Doug Ford's already done it here in Ontario.
3: Yeah. And I mean, and what's not discussed are, you know, of course, because they want to they want to rally their base and 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 push back against the notion of climate action. And which, of course, gets all wrapped up in one policy, which is carbon pricing, when really what we need is not just carbon tax or cap and trade. We need a whole suite of of policies. Um, Carbon pricing is just one part of it. Um, But they 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 use this one. Um, this one mechanism pushed back against that one because they, because they understand that, um, you know, especially people who are center-right, who, you know, hate taxes, are going to rally around them. Um, the reality is, though, that um, there are all kinds of benefits that are never discussed. Right? We, Ontario is, has a much better health outcomes. We're, we're gaining the equivalent of $3 billion in health benefits from having shut down our coal-fired power plants. It has nothing to do with climate change. It has everything to do with like having cleaner air. Because when you reduce the amount of fossil fuels you use, you also produce less local air pollution. So there are all kinds of health benefits, there are all kinds of economic benefits. This is where the this is where the world is going. Not quite as quickly as it should be, but this is where the world is going. And Canada could be left behind. The more that we rely on the fossil fuel industries of the past. We are missing out on opportunities in, in clean tech and renewable energy that many other places, including the developing world, including places like China, are investing in and embracing.
0: And, and again, we're, I guess we can't have this discussion without getting into the politics of it because it's obviously those are the people that make policies uh, or tear them apart, whatever the case might be. But the obvious question that, that I would have for any of these people, the Premier himself if I could, is what's your plan? I mean, and okay, you don't want this one. You didn't think what the previous government did was right, so you've scrapped that. Uh, and that's still going to cost us a lot of money, I'm sure, in the long run. But, but what's your plan? I mean, they asked him about that the other day, and, and, it, and Mr. Ford simply said, well, we're going to encourage uh, businesses to reduce their emissions. And if they don't, he says, well, I'll have a visit and uh, have a talk with them. I mean, that's not any policy at all.
3: Yeah, I mean, this is the, this is the problem, is that um, those who have who have dismantled climate Policies have have um, promised to bring in their own plans, and very rarely, I mean, I can't think of an example in Canada where something has has come in that has been credible in any way. I mean, you talked about the Harper government before. You know, the Harper government um, said that they would they would uh, they campaigned against um, uh, Stephen Dion, the Liberals, and said they would do sector by sector regulations, and it would be more effective. Um, well, what did what? I mean, they regulated one sector. It was it was coal, and they allowed coal-fired power plants to stay open by until 2065. Um, whereas Ontario, at, during that same time, was shutting down coal-fired power plants. The rest of the country didn't do anything. Um, so, w- rarely do these plans who are, that are supposed to replace, you know, a full suite, including the carbon pricing. Ha- those plans have, have not amounted to anything. I'm, I am hopeful that the Conservative Party of Canada actually comes forward with a plan, um, but it remains to be seen whether that will be strong. And, and quite frankly, I don't have a lot of hope.
0: Well, and, and again, you have to ask yourself what options. Then, I mean, if it's not going to be carbon pricing, if it's not going to be cap and trade, uh, if it's not going to be some sort of regulation, uh, you have to ask yourself, well, then where are you going with this? And, and and is is there a template someplace that somebody's looking at to say, yeah, we can do that? Uh, because I don't see too many options at this stage other than ones that have already been tried. And yeah, as I mean, you said, as you've mentioned, Dale, the ones that we have put in place seem to be working.
3: Absolutely, and that's this is. There are three main ways to reduce our carbon pollution. One is to put a tax on it. The second is to have government programs that that um, that uh, that invest in solutions like smart thermostats, like renewable energy, um, you know, like transit. And the third are regulations. Now, conservative parties across Canada have rejected the idea of carbon pricing. But it's not like conservatives generally are in favor of regulations on industry or spending programs, government spending programs. So I don't know where they go, right? I mean, there are only three options. And the one that is most in line with generally conservative values is the idea that we're going to have either a cap and trade system where we're actually creating a market for this stuff um, or a tax which allows, which on pollution, which is bad. That where the money can be used for goods so that the government can invest in or give back to its citizens. I mean that is most in line with generally what you, what I hear from from conservative parties and conservative people. And yet that is the the option that has been taken off the table. So I, I'm again I'm I'm, I'm I hope that something comes forward that's going to be strong. But it's hard to believe that it's going to be given that um, given that one major tool has been essentially. Um, kept in the toolbox.
0: Well, there's been a, a policy about face by the Conservatives here, too, because, I mean, I, I believe it was under the Mulroney administration, uh, they had, they're they the ones that actually floated the idea of, of, of carbon pricing and taxing, uh, as, as as you said, to create an industry for it and, and to get people to buy into this. And and now, all of a sudden, as you mentioned, the Conservatives of this era uh, just say, no, it's bad. The tax bad. No, we're not going to do that. That's that's first thing we're going to scrap if you elect us. And And uh, and we've seen it happen in a couple of provinces already.
3: Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's concerning, right? I mean, we, you know, environmental defense, we are absolutely willing to work with any party, any government that wants to take action. We're obviously happy to go out and campaign on policies that they're interested in putting into place. We're happy to sit down with them and figure out, you know, how to design, um, how to design a policy so that it works. Obviously, along with other stakeholders, Um, You know, like the indigenous communities, like business and industry. Um, But it's true. We, you know, uh, the the notion of cap and trade and creating a market was essentially supposed to be, um, you know, a market oriented solution that that people across the political spectrum could embrace, including right of center people and parties. And yet this this is this very notion is the one that's now being thrown out the window not being thrown out the window, but campaigned against. Um, so it's I mean, it's worrying for me because that's because it has led to a polarization where, you know, certain center left parties are all in favor of doing something and a lot of center right parties are not. And so. This increased polarization means that we don't, we can't move as quickly as a as, um, as a country in the direction that's needed. And this research again highlights just how crucial how urgent it is that we that we all work together to address this issue it it seems to me part of the problem
0: here is that we've politicized uh climate and 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 the environment and you if you're on the right side of the spectrum then you need to be opposed to this if you're on the left well, you're one of those tree hugging lefties then yeah you guys just want to you know save the planet but that's that should be the goal isn't it to save the planet it shouldn't be about politics
3: I, well, well, I mean, you're not going to convince me of that. I mean, you're, you, don't, sorry, you don't have to convince me of that. This is what we've been saying for a long time, is that, of course, the economy and the environment go hand in hand. We're not going to, because, because we're getting rid of things like coal-fired power plants, we're not planning on curling up in a, in a dark cave and, and going to sleep. Um, we're still going to use energy. We're going to get it from somewhere. There's going to be an a- economic activity and in fact there are more jobs being created in renewable energy and energy efficiency than there were in the fossil fuel industries. we already have more jobs in canada in renewable energy than than we do in the oil sands um you know and 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 that industry is growing quickly whereas um you know the future of oil and especially the future of the oil sands are very uncertain given not only climate policies but the economics um, so i mean there. There are lots of different ways to go that um would continue to need prosperity and allow us to address this you know, this incredible challenge.
0: Why don't those stories get told though, Dale? I mean you we you know, you have to dig to find this about about the economy. And and obviously, you know, in, in the most recent Ontario election, of course, those things were simply dismissed out of hand and said, No, that that's not really true. And people just say, Oh, that's the guy I want to vote for and he says it's not true, so it's not true.
3: Yeah. Uh I mean it's it's really unfortunate. I mean you know, there there are a number of reasons why um you know, why the, the situation we're in we're in. Um, one is that politicians aren't being held to account for what they say, you know, we seem to be in this Trump world, in this post fact world that, that where politicians can just say whatever they want and, and and for a reason I don't entirely understand, even when they say things that aren't entirely true or aren't true at all, it's, there's no repercussions. Um, but I also think that you know, the, the conflict gets coverage in the media, that's just the way it is. And so, you know, when we have produced in the past, when we produce reports on solutions, on how we can come forward, how we can you know, have a, a prosperous economy um, and, a, and protect the environment at the same time, that gets, that gets much less coverage than a political strife, right? than polarization. Because that's, that's something that, um, that you know, intrigues the uh, media outlets and it, because it intrigues people. People are drawn to conflict to see, what side am I on? Right? I mean, it's, it's a compelling thing, unfortunately. Um, and solutions are, um, I guess, not quite as compelling, even though you know, we have been telling or trying to tell you know a, you know a very interesting and I think compelling story for a long time about how our country can move in a different direction um, and be part of the solution.
0: Well, we need to do that, and I'm glad that you had the opportunity to jump in with us today and, and, and get the that side of the story because that needs to be told as well. And I'm, I'm guessing with a federal election coming up in about uh, 10 months that uh, uh, this is going to be front and center. I think it's going to be one of the key issues uh, as they move down towards that election next October. Dale, thanks uh, so much for the time today. Greatly appreciate it.
3: Oh, Bill, thank you so much for, for paying attention to this, and uh, I, I really do hope that it that it uh, becomes, that I'm, I'm happy to see it become an election issue, um, you know, and I'm, I'm hoping to see that people turn out for parties that are interested in acting on climate change. And which,
0: so, by the way, should be all parties, but, you know, let's take I, it one absolutely. step at a time, I guess. I would love that. <laughs> Thanks again, um, Dale. We'll talk again soon. Dale Marshall, a uh, National Climate Program Manager with Environmental Defense.
2: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.